0: lord i am uh, i 'm so thankful that we have a bunch of kids in here um, in in chapter twelve of, of exodus you you show us that your aim is toward families that you are not um, That the fact that families exist is not some sort of an accident, but it's your design and and your aim is toward uh, future generations, that they would be faithful and that they would keep covenant and that they would have memorials and and right remembrance that's specific so that we can make sure that our kids and our grandkids um, don't forget the story uh, of redemption that goes very far back. Lord, I pray that we would see ourselves caught up in the things that we're looking at and in Exodus 12, and I pray that we would see that um, you are a very near, a very um, trustworthy, uh, and a very uh, perfect Lord. There is no one like you. There is no God like you. Uh, Other gods cannot hear. They cannot see. They cannot respond, yet you, you always keep your promises. You always fulfill the things that you say. Lord, I pray that you would um, make us more Christ-like as we study the Word. Let us be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Let us not be wishy-washy in our belief. And my prayer is that even as we grow in our faith and our understanding that, that adults and kids alike would take what we hear and that we would go and tell people, that we would share it with our friends, share it with our coworkers, because this is the best news we could ever hear. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome back. I'm very glad that y'all are here. Uh, These times are sweet, and I'm really thankful that we have uh, time each week in the middle of the week where we can dig in. Um, I I don't take it lightly, and uh, that y'all take your time to engage this uh, book, Um, it's very, very sweet. And so uh, I've been praying in preparation for this time, and just hoping that God would continue to reveal to us more about who He is. And so... Uh, I'm thankful that y'all are here, and I'm glad that you are here. Before we look specifically at the text, why is Israel enslaved in Egypt? If we miss that, we're going to sort of miss some important details. Why is Israel enslaved in Egypt? Israel is enslaved in Egypt. Why? Yes, how did Joseph get to Egypt? Why would his brothers do such a thing? They didn't like him. Why? Yeah, there was jealousy. There was favoritism in the family. That doesn't usually ever work out when there's favoritism shown. Um, And so his brothers, uh, being as nice as they are, decided we won't kill him because you can't make as much money just by killing him. So what we'll do is we'll sell him into slavery. And so they sold him into slavery, and he ends up in... Uh, Egypt. So tell me what happened there. When he got to Egypt, what happened? Yes, and how did that go? Not well. Turns out Potiphar's wife's not too trustworthy. And so she had the hots for him, put the moves on. He said no, still went to jail. So he ends up in jail. What happens in jail? He starts interpreting dreams, which is very cool. Why is that cool? Yeah, that's absolutely essential with him getting out. Who, whose dreams, uh, what dreams does he, what dreams do he? There were dreams interpreted at first. Which ones were they? That them, their dream. Yeah. What was the first dream interpreted? Yeah, there's the cupbearer and the baker. And and what was? Do y'all remember what the what the dreams were that were interpreted? Yeah. 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 Ultimately, it was a little bit trippy, but the point is is that he, uh, he interpreted him rightly, and, and what he said was going to happen, happened. And so, uh, when the cupbearer and the baker left, he said, don't forget about me. And what happened? When did they remember him? Or did they both remember him? The one who didn't die remembered him. And how long did that take? Yeah, a few years. We'll go with a few. That, that's a good round number. Um, and so, he gets out uh, because he gets to interpret pharaoh 's dreams, which that 's where you have the the sheaves and the bowing and and all these things and, and ultimately, what we see is Joseph has great wisdom he raises to a point he, he rises to a point of uh, uh, being very respected, very uh, trustworthy um, lots of, uh, lots of responsibilities were put on him to make sure that the kingdom could endure this time of famine um, by by right preparation and so Uh, Over time, there was a new Pharaoh, and like we said earlier, that Pharaoh didn't know who Joseph was, forgot about him, and the Israelite people were doing what at at the time? What, What was happening to their population? It was growing, and why was the Israelite population growing? Say that again. They were blessed by who? God. When? Yeah, through Abraham. I will make you as numerous as the sand on the shore. I will make you as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so what we see here is that they are, in fact, increasing in number uh, because God blessed them and said, I will bless you and make you many in number. And that all started with, with Abraham, right, who had a kid when he was really old. And uh, he thought his wife was barren. turned out. The Lord had other plans. And so what happens? Uh, who does God raise up when they begin to be afflicted? Because the Pharaoh says, hey, you guys are, uh, you're getting too great a number, so what, what did he do when they became too great a number? How did he afflict them? Yeah. He made him work harder. He, he resolved to, to kill uh, uh, the boys. Um, and who does God raise up? Moses. And how does he call Moses? What did, what did, how did Moses... Not get killed when Pharaoh was wanting to kill all the boys. Yeah, they put him in the the basket in the river like a little baby ark covered in pitch. And who fished him out? Pharaoh's daughter, that's right. And so who was appointed to nurse the baby? Yeah, Moses' mama, which works great because that's who you want nursing the baby. So it worked out wonderfully. And so, uh, what happened at the burning bush? We're covering like hundreds of years here. This is good. What happened at the burning bush? Say that again? Yeah. <laughs> Charlton <laughs> Heston. Aside from, from, from Heston, what else happened at the burning bush? Yeah, God called him out and said what? Go to Pharaoh and do What? And when you tell him to let my people go, I'm going to harden his heart. That's a bummer of a job. Hey, I want you to do this thing that's not going to happen. Um, that, that's, that's hard. So he goes to Pharaoh. Uh, he says these things. It's exactly as God played it out. Um, through time, we get to the ten, uh, the 10 plagues. What are the, you know, anyone remember the plagues? When we ended last semester, everyone was like, bam, 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 bam. Remember the plagues? Yeah, the, the blood in what river? Yeah, okay. So the water turned to blood in the Nile. That was the first. Now, as we list these, import your senses. What would this smell like? What would this look like? How, how nasty and gross would this be? So the river is turned to blood, so you can't... They're digging along the side of the river to try to get fresh water. And then what? Frogs. And then what? Gnats. Like, one gnat is all it takes to drive you nuts this is gnats everywhere, okay? What else? Flies. Again, one fly is all it takes to drive you insane. Then the livestock die. Then there's hail the size of VW bugs, locusts, darkness that could be felt, and then there's this final plague that is threatened. Uh, what was the final plague that was threatened? Yeah, death of the firstborn. That's exactly right. Um, now, this was, uh, this was unique because it came with a lot of warning up front, and there's a lot of specificity to the detail. And so that's where we're climbing back into in Exodus 12 uh, tonight. So turn to Exodus 12, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So we're seeing a lot of details here. You can't just go get the three-legged lamb with one eye. He wants an unblemished lamb because it's appropriate that your um, your offering would be unblemished. And so he's telling them, go get them for your household. And as households, you're going to do exactly what I say, which picks up in verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts. And the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, not fried, with unleavened bread, not leavened bread, with bitter herbs, not other herbs you might prefer, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. On the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The Passover is a huge event, very, very piv- pivotal in the life and the history uh, of Israel. Um, it's a defining moment, and from this point forward, things will not be the same to such a degree that the Hebrews will have a new calendar as a result. So God is metaphorically and literally saying times are changing. This is a new beginning that must never be forgotten. That's why he tells them to keep it in such a manner, which we'll study more in a minute. Consider how our worship is meant to be informed in the Passover, specifically by the lamb without blemish. Turn to Ephesians 5, 27. Now this is in consideration of your worship. God says do something, and how do you respond? Because he has told them, get a lamb in its first year, a male, without blemish. So consider how that informs our worship. Ephesians five, twenty-seven. This is talking about how husbands love their wives, and it says in twenty-seven, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So there's a theme that starts here in Exodus. Get a lamb that's without blemish, and then your aim in your worship is without blemish. You, you shouldn't be okay uh, with uh, a blemished uh, sacrifice. Turn over to Philippians 2.15. It's just a couple of pages to the right. Verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights of the world. So we're seeing that what God is doing in Exodus 12 is really informing the way that we're supposed to live. We're not supposed to be as blemished as those who don't know God. It's not about clean noses and parted hair. It's about Christ likeness is what we're going to we're going to encounter even more as we look at this sacrifice. Turn to Hebrews 9:14. Philippians 2.15. Hebrews 9.14 says, starting 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So it informs our worship, but it also informs what God is still doing in Christ for us in our lives. And then finally, turn over to 1 Peter 1. Just to the right, a little more. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 19. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Now, why would we ever do such a thing? Why would we ever do that? What would cause you to say, you know what? I work underneath an unjust master, but I know this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Why would we do that? Who did that first? Yeah, that's what Christ has done for us. And so, if we're wanting to be um, Christ-like in our movements so that we can be unblemished before our Lord and before a crooked and twisted generation... Then there are things that will happen that are certainly uncomfortable that we're supposed to do, as a as a means of displaying the glory of God in Christ. Um, turn back to Exodus twelve seven. Twelve seven says, "Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat." I want us to see that this is indeed an act of faith. Uh, one commentator notes previously they Israel in, he, in Hebrews eleven twenty eight it says that that thing that they did in twelve seven was an act of faith that's that's how they moved forward and responded in faith and uh, one commentator said previously they Israel had been segregated by the Lord without any cooperative or obedient act of on the, of their own I mean consider their time in Egypt at this point um, it, it seems like God hasn't said a lot for a while. They know who their God is. They know who was the God of Abraham, the God of Joseph. But it seems like it's been quiet for a while. They're just kind of in their spot, living the life that has is, is been given to them in Egypt. But now it changes because they've been segregated by the Lord without any cooperative or obedient act of their own. But now, by command of the Lord, Israel must take a stand, self-declared as the people under the blood of the Lamb. And this is what we're seeing as faithfulness. So for you to just say, yeah, I, I love Jesus, love God, that's wonderful. But there's a, there's a time where, just like Israel, there is a, a declaration, and there's a time where you're taking a stand as a child of God under the blood of Christ. So what we'll read from this point forth is not just the motions. This isn't how they just went through the motions of Passover, but what we're reading is what faith looks like. This is human faithfulness as a direct result of God's faithfulness to his purposes, his plan, and his word. Look at verse 8 in Exodus 12. 8 through 10. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. God is revealing to us that his plan for redemption has a very unique balance to it. First, this is specific. What are some specifics we see and how they're supposed to partake of the Passover? Just what are some specifics that y'all heard as you observed? Boil. What else? The time of day? What else? Yeah. Staff in hand, loins girded, sandals on your feet. How else are they supposed to eat? In haste. How else? Every bit of it. It's not. This isn't like. This is not. Show up barefoot. Don't know where your staff is. Loins ungirded. <laughs> kicking back on the sofa. Just. Oh, I, I don't. I just want a little bite. I just want. And don't. I don't like the bitter herbs. Hook me up with. Uh, you got some some olive oil or something I can. You know, like they do at uh, that fancy Italian restaurant. Um, this is this is a picture of God saying, I, "I have a specific way in which I want you to be faithful to me." And so there are specifics, and this should give us warning to be careful about going freestyle with our faith. This is something we talked about in our last time together, and I want to recap it again. Freestyle with our faith. I personally prefer my steak rare. I wouldn't have liked the way they wanted it cooked. I'd be like, ah, it doesn't taste as good. I prefer my steak rare. But preference gives way to faithfulness. Preference gives way to faithfulness. If you have a preference, yet faithfulness is saying this, Preference gives way to faithfulness. That, that's the way it's supposed to be in the life of a believer. Now, unfortunately, for a lot of believers, we say, well, if God really loves me, then he wouldn't want me to have to change my preference, so my preference must be faithfulness. And that's, that's illogical reasoning that's unbiblical. Preference always gives way to faithfulness. Obey God no matter what the cost, even if you're suffering unjustly, like Christ. The two are not always easily reconciled, faithfulness and preference. Preference. Which is why preference is secondary or obsolete if unfaithful. What are some ways that people can go freestyle in their faith? Freestyle in their faith. That's common but unbiblical. What are some things that are common but unbiblical? Disengaging from community. Yeah, that's that's actually the community you live in. The majority of Greenville, Texas, Hunt County, says, I'm square with God, love Jesus, don't hate either of them. We're good, but I I really don't have much use for the bride of Christ, for the local church. That's the community you live in. That's that's a preference that some have, um, but that's not necessarily biblical to be able to disengage from community and say it's not not a necessary thing. What are some other things ways we can go freestyle in our faith? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we settle for inaccurate interpretations by saying, well, that's just my interpretation, that's your interpretation, we have different interpretations. What we learned at our teacher's meeting on Sunday is there's one right interpretation. There may be different applications, but there's one right interpretation. Otherwise, God's wishy-washy and just, he's like, here, do with it what you want. That's not how our God works. So there's one interpretation that's right. It has many applications, but we settle for, for uh, less than the truth when we, when we settle for something less. What are some other ways we can go freestyle in our faith? Y'all are being timid. They're, I mean, there's some great answers y'all can give right now. Just totally step on someone's toes in the room. It'd be exciting. Not worshiping because <laughs> it may not be style. Yeah. Yeah. Disengaging, opting out of worship due to style. Yes, I would call that unbiblical. Yet, raising style to the point of what's most important is also unbiblical. What else? Yeah, yeah. The read real fast portions of your Bible where you're like, "Ooh, I do not like that. Let's move on to the next thing." Where that's breathed out by God, profitable for reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that you could be competent and equipped for every good work. I think I'll opt out of that. I don't like the way that is. That's unsavory. Like I said, I I don't like bitter herbs. Can opt out of that. What else? Anything else? Not submitting to authority. Yeah, that that's probably one of the biggest reasons that. You can't ever remedy differences in a body. Some, I mean, there's a lot of time. The church is sort of known right now for those people who don't know how to argue without splitting ways, and that's not the way it's supposed to be. One might be because there's no right biblical leadership in order, and the other might be because someone says, who are you? And, you know, um, that would be unbiblical as well. So while faith can have many expressions, the expression itself does not change faith. Faith can have many expressions, but the expression does not change faith. So if you go too far in the pursuit of uniqueness or artsiness or freedom, you can find yourself dismissing aspects of the faith, uh, like the local church or corporate worship or giving or singing or you name it. Um, I almost did that on accident when I was 19. I decided I wanted to buy an old Taco Bell that was empty and turn it into a place that was better than church because I was annoyed with church at the time. I would have dismissed many important aspects of the faith had that worked, but you can't get credit for a commercial building at 19, so it doesn't work. <laughs> um, completely consumed. The, the sacrifice is to be completely consumed. Um, we don't dabble in our faith. That Again, you can't, we can't sit there and look at this herb-roasted um, lamb and, and say, um, I don't, it's unsavory, I don't, I don't want to eat it, I, or I'll just, I'll just take a little bite, okay? I'll take part, I'll take a little bite. Fully consumed. And the picture here is we don't dabble in our faith. We don't dabble in Christ. Faith is all-consuming because Christ is meant to be completely considered and obeyed. Don't be mostly given to the flesh and mostly given to the world and then add some Jesus. Don't let Christ be a small part of your life. I mean, these are, these are basics of faith that God is trying to instill in his people as he pulls them out of Egypt and moves them towards the promised land where they can only operate in a way where they're totally dependent upon God. And so he's saying, you know, don't, don't, don't dabble in this. Fully consumed, that would be the equivalent of thinking that a few bites of the Passover lamb cooked to your preference would suffice for obedience. It's not obedience. So here the Israelites are receiving instruction about feasting in haste, loins girded, and the feast properly carried out. Egypt is not their home, and it's almost time to leave. Look at verses 14 through 20. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened from the first day, until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now, I want to make sure that I believe this, and other people who are significantly smarter than me, uh, believe that cut off from Israel here is not, uh, we're going to kill you. That's not what that is. And it's not necessarily like banishment from the nation. Um, I believe it's, you're not going to take part in this because you're doing it wrongly. Um, It's sort of the adult equivalent of, You're going to sit in time out. You're not going to get to have the fun that everyone else is having because of the way you're acting, because it misrepresents truth. Um, Remember, the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. And so what I see is they're cut off if they partake of the leaven because they're suppressing the truth in an unrighteous manner by not walking according to what God has said. Verse 16. On the first day... You shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever, in the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening. You shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Now, using our observation skills here, what are some details that we need to pay attention to in regard to what God is calling his people to take part in? Consider things that stick out, words repeated, and specific details. Unleavened bread, unleavened bread, unleavened bread, nothing leavened, nothing leavened, nothing leavened. Yeah, that's an important detail. So at this point, if you had no idea what uh, leavened meant, you might look that up because this is an important detail that we will discuss. What are some other things? The time period. Yes. Say that again. Yeah. And if you disobey, you'll be cut off from Israel so there's there's some consequences there that are not to be taken uh, lightly well, yeah get the leaven out of the house not just don't partake of it get it out of the house see if you misread the passage you could you could miss that point that's a really important point yeah for all generations and forever are we still in forever i think so Problematic to anyone else? We'll handle it very gently and carefully. What other details? I want to give a word on 11, and then we'll work through some of those details. Remember, all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. So in Christ because of Christ we don't forget the Passover. Um and and things are fulfilled in Christ which we'll talk more about briefly. Leaven literally what someone has? the yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, God's not racist. And so the ethnic issue here is not it's not just ethnic Israel, and some people say it was only ethnic Israel for a long time and then it changed, and then you look at the full inclusion in Romans eleven, but here you see this picture of their worship must have gathered some in. That's what I mean you've heard Ben say the long arm of evangelism is a healthy church. I think we see it right there. Look at uh okay, leaven. No, you're good. That was a good point. Leaven is a substance like yeast that is added to dough to make it rise. Has anyone ever actually cooked bread or baked cooked? Is that even right? Baked bread like that? (laughs) Uh, Clearly, I haven't. Okay. If you want to start a new batch, all you need is a little leavened dough from the old batch to do so. It literally permeates and changes the entire new batch. So figuratively, Israel is being called to take their dough and run. The picture here is consume Christ completely and walk in decisive newness. When we're looking at leaven, consider decisive newness. Turn to First Corinthians five. Your kids, I, I think um, Tiffany was trying to bake unleavened bread today, and so this will be something the kids engage. If it didn't get leavened and ruined, <laughs> it's funny. That's a funny problem we have today. Um, but um, engage your kids in this conversation. I, I, I mean, they're going to talk about what they what they. Considered in their classes, and so when you get home, ask him about that, and then talk about how how the word leaven. When we're talking about leaven, we're we're talking about this complete conversion, this decisive newness, this this new person that you are in Christ. First uh, Corinthians. Uh, what did I say? Five. Hope so. First Corinthians five verses six through eight. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate this festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is in Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, many, many years later. So what's happening here in Exodus 12 is truth that is permeating and explaining um, God's will to future generations. And that's why it's kept as a memorial. The aim is future generations. So, um, consume Christ completely and walk in decisive newness. Um, One commentator's observation is this. The first Passover constituted a new beginning of enormous proportions. And inevitably, that emphasis continued. Paul... Many years later, therefore, picking up on the New Testament insistence that the Lord Jesus is the Lamb of God, summons Christians to a decisive new beginning in Christ. He, Paul, in his ministry, is saying, Hey, that old Passover Lamb of Christ, I, I'm going to take that truth, and I'm going to say, I'm calling you Christians to, to walk in, in the newness of the life of Christ. Walk in decisive newness. Um, the Passover idea of leaven, then, is one of decisive newness. The old has passed away, and all things have become new. This is a picture of decisive and complete Conversion. So when you talk about conversion, it's not bad. Um, Just in case you're wondering, that's not a bad thing. We hope people are converted to Christ and walk in a manner that is explained in Exodus 12. Decisive newness, unleavened, not letting a little leaven, leaven the whole lump. It's dangerous to dabble in sin. Don't dabble in sin and also don't dabble in Christ. Consume Christ completely. Let him be what you're completely about. That's what's being explained here. So how does this inform the Lord's Supper that we partake of each week? Uh Uh-huh. Really? Just because it's in the air? Dude, don't even dabble. Yeah. So literally clean it all out of the house because it can even be in the air if it's not, wow. Wow. I did not know that, and that 's a uh, that 's a pretty cool point if it 's in the air it can after seven days it 'll start a whole new thing wow so yeah don 't dabble don 't dabble if it 's in the air it, it it'll it 'll run its course and permeate all the way through uh, so how does this inform the lord 's Supper that we partake of each week? Yeah. yeah. What? How are we claiming it as a memorial? Yeah. Yeah. I've always thought it would be funny to pass out loaves because you have to completely consume it and just watch everyone kind of. Uh, what do I do? Um, yeah. Christ is our Passover Lamb, and we're mindful of that. When it says, "Do all the tables said, do this this do in remembrance of me." Um, that's at, like churchfurniture.com or whatever, and um, and so the remembrance is not just like wishy-washy, flaky, like oh yeah, Jesus, we love Him. Okay, huh? It's specific remembrance. The remembrance that we're called to is very specific. Don't just don't just be vague in your worship. Be specific to to completely consume Christ. You got to consider what what am I even taking in here? What has he done? What is he doing? What are his plans? What are the intentions? How does he expect me to walk? And so our remembrance is specific. So Passover lamb, Christ is our Passover lamb. When we take the supper, we're proclaiming that. We're remembering that. And then we want to teach it to our children as well. Are there any other ways that it informs the Lord's Supper? Y'all think about that. Yeah, yeah, there's a sense in which you're like, man, this is scandalous that I'm partaking of this. He has done something that is outside of me. I could not accomplish this on my own. Um, I don't have to go and get the, the lamb and, and do all the stuff and the roasting and all that. This is something that, that Christ has done for me. So some, there's something in the way of the simplicity of what we take in that is really much larger than that and much more beautiful and robust. eager anticipation. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we don't just uh, one more time, again next week. We, we, we feast in haste as well. Loins girded, staff in hand, sandals on your, on your feet. That's how we're supposed to operate in all things on earth and, and, and Passover and Lord's Supper uh, remind us of that, that this is not our home and in fact we too are being led towards a promised land. So there's serious consequences for eating that which is leavened and we need not miss that. Look at verses 21 through 28. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, remember, they haven't left yet. Real quick, let me interject that. This is a celebration of the freedom of God's people. He's telling them, this is exactly how you're going to celebrate and how you're going to hold a memorial and how you're going to respond and make sure that the coming generations don't forget, but they're still in captivity. They still haven't left at this point. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop. And dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel uh, and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter the houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come into the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised. You shall keep his service. You shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. What protects the people of God? The blood of the Lamb. It's both actual and poetic. What protects the people of God is the blood of the Lamb. What must the blood... Well, it must be seen. Uh, by who? Who sees the blood? God. While it's not works-based salvation, there is a decisive action to be taken in obedient response to God's command. Don't just say that's a good idea, God. God. Don't nod in approval when Moses is relaying what God says. Don't say, Amen, that's good. Hallelujah. Go get the hyssop branch. Dip it in the blood. Go to the door. Put it on the lintel and the doorposts and shut the door and stay inside. Do what you've been told to do because you know that that is faithfulness. What are they being protected from? Yeah, who are they being protected from? God the destroyer. That's not a, not a lot of us like to think of God like that, the destroyer. There's a lot of thinking that's just biblically flawed where um, people think that God saves us from Satan. You know, we're redeemed because Satan has the right over us, and, and we're redeemed. And, and in a sense, he certainly redeems us from being children of, of disobedience um, but God's wrath is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. The way Egypt has been living is suppressing the truth about who God is. And God is coming in in his wrath to execute perfect judgment. And so the blood on the doorpost protects Israel from God because God is about to clean house in a way that is done in perfect judgment. God ordains these memorials and these solemn assemblies with an aim toward the family unit. Don't, move, don't, don't miss that. We we try to be family-oriented in in all of the things we do at Crosspoint because we really believe that that's a God-ordained thing, that God says, I'm targeting families. That doesn't mean that if you're not with a big family, you're not welcome. But our hope is that you wouldn't just be introduced to only other single people, but that you would be involved and move in with with families and work and live with families so that we can see what God's doing here, that the family unit is uh, no small thing in the eyes of the Lord. He created it. He has specific aim towards generational faithfulness. The observance gives opportunity to teach your children. This is not a side note, but a part of your worship. A part of your worship is teaching your children as you go. It's not, I'll give a little side note to my kids over here about what's going on. It's you are teaching them as part of your worship. You're bringing them along. You're tending the flock as an expression of your love for God. Remember John 21, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Tend my flock, feed my lambs, um, feed my sheep. This picture is, you do that with your children and others as an expression of your love for God. There's an ESV note here that Israel's identity as the people uh, whom the Lord had brought out of Egypt uh, was to be formed not only through faithful participation in the celebration of Passover. It wasn't enough just to faithfully participate. Faithful participation is important, especially in the Passover, but it's not enough just to faithfully participate, but also by proper narration of what it signifies. That's challenging. If you're taking part in something you can't really explain to your children, you might just be going through the motions. That should be sobering. It's sobering for me. It's challenging. If you're taking part in something that you can't really explain to your kids, you might just be going through the motions. And as a pastor, I'm not here to say, slap on the wrist, shame on you. I'm saying, dig in, dig, ask questions. It's so good to be able to know that God gives us insight and understanding into his ways. So if you find us gathering like, why do we sing? Because God told us to sing. He said bring a sacrifice of praise. Why do we do that? Because he tells us to keep it as a memorial, to look towards future generations. Uh, Why do people give money to the church? That's weird to me. Why would I give my money away? Well, there's things in the Bible that we can look at to understand that all these things that that you could possibly have a problem with or just go through the motions and ask, could I explain this to my kids or someone else's kids? And if I can't explain it, I might just be going through the motions. It should be challenging and sobering. We'll continue in verse 29 in the sobering aspect of this uh, chapter. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. This actually happened. Don't just read this and listen as a story in a faraway land long, long ago. This actually happened, and it should sober us up and it should captivate our our minds and our hearts to consider what's going on. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, of all the firstborn, even of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night. Are your loins girded? Are your sandals on your feet? You got your staff in hand? You're going to get summoned at night. And said, up. Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, take your herds as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. This is sobering. This is God's fulfillment of his promises as he acts and moves in perfect judgment. There is no part of God's movement that is rash, there is no part of God's movement that is unfair. There is no part of God who is able to fly off the handle in a way that's dishonorable. God's moving in perfect honor and perfect justice. Again, import your senses and consider what this would have sounded like. Can you hear the great cry in Egypt? Imagine if we just opened the doors here and, and not one house in Greenville had, had, there wasn't one house where someone wasn't dead. Think about the cries that you would hear coming breaking through the night sky. Think about the weeping. Think about the terror. Think about the, the, the just sense of, I don't, even, I don't even know what to do. This is all, and, and it's all around me. It's not just even in my home, but it's all around me. So the people who would generally comfort are mourning themselves. I mean, this is really tragic. Can you hear the great cry in Egypt? With doorposts covered in blood and lambs slain, I'm sure that the smell of death already rested heavily on Egypt. You ever been around an animal that's been gutted? It's a pretty pungent smell. I'm sure the smell of death was already on Egypt, but now the reality of death rests even more heavily than the smell. Egypt, Egypt's unwelcome guest, has made himself known. Yet the midnight of deliverance has arrived for God's chosen nation. Imagine being an Israelite. Every Israelite alive at this time was born into slavery. Imagine being an Israelite, born into slavery, looking at your firstborn, who was also born into slavery. And together, you listen to wailing and weeping and mourning and terror, knowing that it is only the decisive work of God that allows you to share that moment. This is sobering. At this moment, the realities of your God would be clear. At this moment, the realities of who your God is and what he is doing and how he has proclaimed something and done that very thing, he fulfills his promises, he keeps them. The realities of your God at that moment would be clear, they would be precious, and they would be overwhelmingly comforting as you look at your firstborn. Look at verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. I went to a funeral today. And there's a reality when you go to funerals where the reality of death sets in like it doesn't on a normal Wednesday. You, you think, you know what? The work that we're about here is important. The work that we're about here is urgent. Death is very real. It happens to many people every day. You never know when your day is the last day. So the work of, of ministry that the saints, the saints are equipped for is very important, and, and you gain perspective in it. When you look at death, but something we consider here is the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of land in haste, for they said, we shall, we shall all be dead. It's not enough just to fear death. It's not enough just to fear death. The Egyptians did that. And I would even say, it's not enough just to be fearful of God. You must consume the lamb completely. You must be covered in the blood of the lamb. You must not dabble in it. It's not enough to only fear death. Look at verse 34. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. I mean, they're going in the kitchen and grabbing stuff and saying, we're gone, we're out. We were feasting in haste, and now they are telling us to leave in haste. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had, listen to this, they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, like on their way out. Hey, hey, that gold, you mind, mind if I put it in my little bowl here? I'm going to take it with me. They, they plundered the Egyptians in this way. Listen, um, they asked for silver and gold jewelry for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. Usually, when you think of plundering, you think of, ah, go in and kick the table over and take what I want and wield my sword. They plundered verbally, a verbal plundering. Because of the favor of the Lord. They walked in and said, can I have all the gold and silver, please? Okay, here you go. We're, we're going to leave like you asked, but I'm going to need all your valuables. Ultimately, that was the gold and silver that would go to build the temple, which would be really cool to study later on. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot. We're, we're talking a lot of people. 600,000 men on foot. There's only like 25,000 people in Greenville. If you take just the men, you're talking about like 24 times the population of Greenville journeying out, just the men, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. I mean, they are loaded. I mean, they're like leaving town in Escalades with bling and all sorts of expensive treasure. They're loaded, and they're gone. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provision for themselves. Uh, The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. God watches us and always has been. He fulfilled promises from earlier in Exodus, where he said, you will go out with many expensive treasures. And then he fulfilled promises all the way back to Abraham, saying your people will be freed in a a manner that is later explained in Exodus 3. When I see how specifically God keeps his covenant and his promises, I think about 1 Peter. Turn there and we'll close with this verse. Just think about God making these promises to Abraham years and years before, and they're fulfilled as as Israel walks out of Egypt with all their goods. Consider what was said in Exodus 3 where... It's you'll leave with, I mean, you see God saying things hundreds of years ahead of time, and with absolute pinpoint certainty, they happen. He was the one who said, You'll go into Egypt, you, you will multiply, you'll become great. I'll multiply you as the sand and the stars. Everything that God has said, it just keeps coming true. Go into Pharaoh, who hardens his heart. It's cool, I got it. Go into Pharaoh, harden in his heart. It's cool, it's God. It. I'm going to send this plague. Okay, bam, it happens. I'm going to send this it, it happens. I'm going I'm I'm to take the lives of the, first, of the firstborn in Egypt. Big warning, big warning, and it happens. Everything he says with pinpoint certainty happens. In light of that, let's read 1 Peter 3, verse 8. 2 Peter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. He's Speaking to you, that with the Lord one day, it says a thousand years. So 430 years is like less than half a day. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up. And dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Pinpoint certainty. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's our promised land. It's absolutely certain. Like just as certain as all this other stuff happened, that's happening. That's going to happen. That's that's what we're doing. We're walking in faith saying, I believe God said it. Everything else he said happens, and I believe he said this, and I absolutely believe it's going to happen. And if I'm not covered by the blood, that's where my problem comes in. If I'm not covered by the blood of the lamb. Before chapter 12... Israel could not leave Egypt. By the end of chapter 12, Israel could not stay in Egypt. My hope for us is that we would walk in a manner worthy of the call placed on our lives. Israel would now have to go and walk with God. That's how a lot of the old commentators say it. They would go and walk with God now. And uh, that's what they're doing, literally walking through the wilderness, trusting him for the most simple of provision, in eager anticipation of the promised land. Walk with God. We walk in the same way, looking to God, following his lead, trusting him for provision, in eager anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth, in which we will get to dwell in the presence of the Lord without sin. It is so good to know that's not an if. This is absolutely certain. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to, um, to not doubt. When we see what you say and what you proclaim and what you say is going to happen and we compare it with what you have said before and what has happened, we know that there is, there is no doubt that you are a God who, does, who is not wishy-washy. You are a God who um, is completely trustworthy. You are a God who does not say one thing and then, and then sort of changes his mind. Um, yet in our ministry, you call us to to reason with and to help the doubter. So keep us from scoffing because scoffing brings division. Keep us from looking at this and saying, whatever, that's not going to happen. That's divisive. But Lord, if anyone in here is doubting, I pray that another fellow brother or sister in Christ would come alongside them. Or maybe they're not brothers and sisters in Christ yet. But I pray that discipleship would happen and someone would come alongside and, and love the doubter and be patient with the doubter and to reason with the doubter. And where we have doubts, I pray that you would teach us to trust you. I'm thankful that there's a work of the Holy Spirit going on still. And I'm thankful that um, what Christ has done is still effective in our lives. It's not wearing out. And I pray that we would walk in a manner worthy of the call placed on our lives, just as we see Israel doing as they leave Egypt. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.